This is Dr. Kirk Harris with Fathers, Families, and Healthy Communities. This is the Chicago Rundown, and I got some fantastic guests today that I want to get you all hooked into. Um, We're going to have a fabulous show today. We're going to be talking about the issues of father engagement and family strengthening, which is, as everybody knows who's listened to any of our podcasts, this question about fatherhood and family engagement and family strengthening is what we do and what we're concerned about. So, but that said, we have two beautiful black intelligent women here today which i have to say, i have to say all of that right because you know um when the women are in the room they always got something really important and significant to say and we got to give them voice because without them we don't have strong community so with that said i want to take the opportunity um uh, and maybe i'll start to my left uh, and introduce you to uh, a friend, a recent friend, but I think our friendship is growing, uh, uh, Dr. Tiffany McDowell. Uh, Dr. Tiffany McDowell is the former co-executive director of the Institute for Social Inclusion at Atler University and is presently a co-founder and steering committee member for the Chicago Equity Network, the Chicago Land Equity Network. And we've done a little work with them and, and we hope to grow that work. And uh, uh, Dr. McDowell will talk a little bit about herself and introduce herself. And I didn't want to move to the next engaging black woman to my right, uh, Heather Parrish. Heather Parrish is the uh, program director for Pierce Family Foundation. She has 17 years plus in experience doing consulting uh, as a nonprofit sector and otherwise. And Heather is playing a very significant role in, in leadership in this new initiative that's been advanced nationally by the uh, uh, Kellogg Foundation called Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation, which is occurring in Chicago. And Heather will talk a little bit about herself and uh, and what's happening in that. And then I got a, as you know, those of you who've listened to me, I got a series of questions that I'm going to ask these beautiful black intelligent women, uh, and they're going to engage us in their responses, and I'm looking forward to that. So, Tiffany, maybe you can start off. Sure. Um, so just a little bit more about me. I'm trained as a couple and family therapist, um, but I've transitioned into community psychology. Um, I just early on have always worked and thought about people in the context of their systems and think about families as systems, right? So the same processes that we see happening um, in our families, we see in our communities and in our, in our cities and countries. So I think um, we can learn a lot from how we interact as a group of people um, and translate that into our other uh, activities as communities. So I'm glad to be here and thank you for reaching out. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. So, Heather. So I'm Heather Parrish and uh, I'm a native Californian, but I've been in Chicago for going on 24 years now. So you're a Chicagoan. What, what, <laughs> what, what the hell are you doing holding on to that, that California thing? What are you doing Cali with girl. that? I'm always going to be a Cali girl. <laughs> but yes, Chicago has definitely become my second home. Um, for the last five years, I've been working as the program director for the Pierce Family Foundation which focuses a lot on serving um, nonprofits or supporting nonprofits that are in the housing and homeless services sector. Um, we do a lot of uh, capacity building support for those organizations as well as providing general operating support. And um, prior to being at the Pierce Family Foundation, I spent, like Kirk's, Dr. Harris said, over 17 years of 
doing independent consulting with nonprofits and foundations that are typically engaged in community economic development or housing initiatives or community comprehensive community change initiatives. So um, in terms of my calling for this work, I grew up uh, in a single parent family, um, low income, working class, and grew up always seeing economic inequity and all of these perceptions of how our communities don't deserve to have certain things, amenities, quality of life things that I felt was just unfair and I didn't know why it was that way. Mm -hmm. And so as I got older and wanted to figure out what type of work I wanted to do, community development really is like a calling for me to be engaged in somehow helping our communities be more self-sustainable, um, to be healthier, to have all the other amenities that other communities deserve to have, and we deserve those same things. So that's kind of been kind of why I do this work. Um, and then in terms of truth, racial healing, and transformation, the initiative, um, the Woods Fund of Chicago has been leading that work here, and they approached me um, last fall and asked if I would consider being the lead consultant to help with the planning phase of that work. And so uh, I'm grateful that the Pierce Family Foundation allowed me to do that, and they actually blessed me to lend, or they lent my time toward that work and said, go ahead and do it. We can contribute to that. We want to be at the table anyway. Make it happen. Great. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. So now I'm transitioning out of that and back to Pierce. But Okay. okay. Well, yeah. That's excellent background. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to, you know, we've, we've got a lot of crazy stuff happening in our nation today. And, um, but, but what seems to always pop as it, as it has over the last 300 years of black people in America is this question of race. And I, I want to begin there because when we talk about systems and we talk about deep inequalities that are historically driven, uh, we, it seems like we always have to come to that question. And there was a time, that, you know, we had the Obama administration and we thought we were post-racial. We thought we were in a post-racial America. We didn't think that. Well, maybe, okay. <laughs> Some people did, though. Right. Well, well, I, <laughs> well I, I, wanna, I just want to put that out there. There was some, there was some emerging perception that yeah. something had substantially changed in America. And then we had a new election. And we found out that maybe it hasn't. So I guess what I'm, I want to get to you, plant this firmly with, you, with both of you and kind of get your response. What's your sense about the impact kind of, of, kind of historic and institutional racism on, on black communities and black families? And, and are we making too much of it? Well, I know that that's a deep question. I think, um, one, we're definitely not making too much of it when you think about just the historical um, trauma that we have experienced. You know, like you said, in our it, over 300 years um, as black people in America, if you think about just colonialism, period, and just the processes that had to happen to take people from their countries, remove them physically, emotionally, spiritually, take them somewhere else, force them to work, separate them from the connections, the bonds, everything that they've ever known, and then have them recreate a life 
that's totally different in a totally different space, that's traumatic enough. Then you add on top of it all of the atrocities of slavery. Then we move into um, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, you know, mass incarceration. There's so much that has been built layer upon layer on top of us that I'm very, I'm always surprised when people talk about, you know, how resilient we are. Like, that's not even a question, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's like, I, I, if there's a word that's beyond resilience, that's where we're at. So I definitely don't think that we're, you know, overstating that the trauma that black people have suffered being here. Um, and I definitely think that it's time. I think people are ready to, to think about it, especially because we're living in the Trump era where, um, he seems to have demonized people that have come from other places as if everybody in this country except native indigenous peoples did not come from somewhere else. <laughs> so I think people are, um, you know, I think people are ready now to think about multiple perspectives. Um, I think though, what we need to understand is that black people have been trying to have this conversation for a long time. So we need to make sure that we, have our voices heard in this conversation. So that's not just about immigrant rights, but it's about thinking about uh, multiple stories, healing folks that have had multiple um, abuses and traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think we still have a long way to go, but I'm happy that people are at least acknowledging trauma and are actively working about doing that work right now. Okay. Okay. So, Heather, any thoughts that you have? Because, you know, people would say, well, you know, so much has changed, you know. So much is different. Uh, any thoughts that you have about that and, and its implications for uh, families, and, com and particularly in communities maybe generally? I will acknowledge that we have made progress on some things. We are not dealing with the same overt systematic racism that was in your face around Jim Crow, post-Reconstruction, and other things like that. Opportunities are open. Having said that, though, this last election, the presidential election, should clearly tell people that things have not changed on, some, on many levels, particularly when you've got a sector of the population in this country who really feels threatened by anybody of color or anybody who has a different experience from them. Um, I feel like it's two steps forward and one step back sometimes. Um, and I think after the civil rights movement, I think that generation who fought for us thought that their work was done. And I don't know if they fully transmitted the urgency of having to continue that struggle. Mm -hmm. they, want their, they wanted their children to be comfortable, to not have to deal with the same atrocities and racism and other injustices that they had to deal with. But at the same time, I think there may not have been enough of a emphasis on, you know what, this don't go to sleep. Because I think a lot of people went to sleep and got complacent and got comfortable. Um, and now this most recent election has shown that no, thing, there are a lot of people who just were not comfortable being honest about how they really felt, but they now have been given the um, agency right. to be able to really speak what's on their minds and to feel and to really demonstrate how threatened they are by But, but here's by the thing, here's so. the thing. Uh, my view is I don't care if, no, if somebody doesn't like me. 
I don't care if they want to call me whatever they're going to call me. The question that I always have to ask myself is how are they going to impact my life? Right, so 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 there's so for me it's two it, it operates at two levels. It's like this surface level where the question is whether people are being overt in their animus, right? Overt and direct in their animus, and another level is what's happening under the surface if they ain't being overt. Well, that's the and, point. I think that they weren't being allowed to be overt, and now we're seeing that come to bear that they were not, they were feeling that they couldn't speak their mind, but someone has given them the agency now to be able to do that. But if they speak in their so, mind, but so, so my question is, if they're speaking their mind, so what? I'd rather than speak their mind. I think, that, I think that's why we're surprised at what's happened. Yeah. Oh, a lot of people have been surprised at what's happened. I don't think there's a lot of us who knew that this was always brewing, but I think there are a lot of people, particularly white people and other folks who felt that we had gotten past a certain point around racism, and clearly we haven't. So, so, so let's talk about, because my view is, is that sometimes we conflate this issue of kind of the individual racism and um, systems that continue to drive inequality based on race and economics, right? And, and, and that's where I want to go with this next question, and that's specifically getting maybe drilling down a little bit around trauma because in our communities we've noticed and we don't have to even notice this in our own communities let's just talk initially about economic inequality of the industrialized nations in the world america is probably the most economically unequal nation in the world so that that's one that's issue now the other truth is that um in terms of the uh, America's history. It is also, it has deeply embedded in its history a set of racial systems mm -hmm. that, by the way, it is also exported to other portions of the world. Colonialism uh, is real. <laughs> yeah, you know. uh, that it has exported. Um, and those systems are also are functioning, right? And, and it has nothing to do with whether somebody likes you or not, right? It has something to do with the way you as an individual or you as a collective group are interacting with that system and how there are disparate outcomes as a function of that interaction. Mm -hmm. So, and that has created trauma, right? That has created um, stress. That has created a series of uh, issues that kind of often that we talk about in terms of poor health, health outcomes. We talk about kind of economic disjunctures and unemployment. We talk about education and the, and the disjunctures there. But often when we have those discussions, we don't go back to the history. What we do is we say, if we could get them damn parents, them damn parents to get them kids un under pookie under control, right? Then, and they get them have value education, everything would be all right. You know, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. I mean, I don't, don't let me get off my soapbox right now. But I'm, my point is, is that sometimes when we, when, when we go to our solutions, uh, that our solutions end up being focused on the individuals who are traumatized in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted, any thoughts about kind of trauma and, and how it intersects with kind of Racism and institutional racism and, and its implications for our families and our communities. Yeah, um, I think 
from my perspective, I think it's what you're saying is definitely true, but I think it's because you're our, our structures are tied up in our cultural values, right, and vice versa. So either we start with a cultural value that um, people with dark skin or Africans or black people are bad, lazy, whatever, and then we create the policy to sustain and institutionalize that value, or then we grow up or we age out of that generation, move into the next generation, the policy is in place. We don't remember what the cultural value was, but we just know our policies are treating black people as though they are lazy, bad criminals, right? So it's a cyclical thing, and it, it's that's why we're acting like this. So I think the more that people are trying to push to break down some of the systemic barriers, I think people are then identifying, like, wait a minute, why is it that this exists in the first place? And they're saying, okay, because we believe this about you. We believe this about black men. We believe this about black people in general. Um, it's, it's definitely a, an ugly process, and I'm sure Heather will talk about that, because we believe it about ourselves, right? So a lot of the work that we do in communities, we're scared to work on the policy because we're like, oh, that'll never change. So we try to go and work with our brothers and sisters and say, well, you need to change your behavior. Why? Why is it? Why do they have that behavior? Why don't we do that work? That work is so much harder, I think, to do to look at changing cultural values, changing our systemic values, um, changing the structural factors than just going and trying to gather up our, our family and say we need to change ourselves and then maybe they'll like us better. Mm -hmm. So I get your point about, you know, not caring whether or not someone likes you, but when those people who don't like you are the people creating the policies that police you, that, you know, keep you where you are or even reduce you to something else mm -hmm. or lesser than what you really are, it's important that you care about it. Right, right. Yeah, and I want to build on what Tiffany is saying because she hit it right on the head. Why do we even have to create policies in the first place to intervene on all this other structural, institutional racism that's even had to be mm -hmm. in here, right? Why, what's the point of doing that? And it does get back to how we are viewed in society, mm -hmm. how we've been valued. And actually the whole mission that Kellogg has put forth, the Kellogg Foundation has put forth as to why we're doing truth racial healing and transformation is because they want to eliminate the hierarchy of human value. And that's exactly what Tiffany was just trying to address. There has been a hierarchy of human value placed on your skin color, what you look like, tied to capitalism, tied to these structures that have been put in place to keep certain folks down and keep certain folks in power, period. And so until we change that, um, you know, that's the root of what we're, we're trying to address. So Truth, racial healing, transformation, and that work that we're engaged in is really some deep work, both on an individual healing level as well as systemic and institutional. Um, and the trauma piece that you keep talking about really is really tied heavily to the healing piece. Mm -hmm. You've got to start with yourself before you can start to heal communities, families, systems, structures, and all of that. So that's kind of the premise. So truth, the narratives, the false narratives that have been put out there, how do we correct those, address them? Why do we even have those false narratives in the first place? So mm -hmm. the truth is the first part. The racial healing 
will have to emanate from that because once the truth is exposed, then the racial healing, that opens the way for racial healing to hopefully happen, right? Um, and that has to be both individual, family, cultural, systemic, everything, okay? Um, and then transformation. There's a reason why the Kellogg Foundation chose the word transformation. While they looked at the truth and reconciliation models that have been put forth um, in different countries around the world, this is not a situation where we're trying to reconcile because we, it, reconciliation implies that we were initially together, then went apart, and then came back together. And the formation of this country, we were never ever together. So they really said, it's, this is more about transformation, not about reconciliation. So that's where that part comes in. So transformation in terms of structure, law, policy, and we have to even be careful about policy because we have to get to the root cause of why a policy is even in place. So, right. you know, transformation really um, is the more expressive way to think about how we want to go to the next evolution of this. Well, let me ask a question because this, 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 is, this is perplexing me, and mm-hmm. that's why I always love having people smarter than myself engaging with people that's much smarter than do, myself. Here's the thing. Here's, so, so here's my question. We got, we got this notion of American exceptionalism. Right. I mean, and, and tied to that notion of American exceptionalism is a set of values that are hierarchical. And in fact, it, it's what drove the idea, let's make America great again. Right. So I just want to I want to lay that out on the table, because I think from a from a, a from a, the perspective of where we are now as a nation, even knowing where we've been, we're still constrained by this, this the replication of this American Exceptionalism, this notion of American exceptionalism, which I argue, and, and I want to get your view, continues to pull open the gaping wound that already exists. So I'm trying to figure out, if we talk about systems and, and healing communities and healing families, how do we stop the continued injury that is happening driven by this notion of American exceptionalism and this hierarchy of values, where, where, I mean, where does that stuff, that, because it, what I'm hearing is that, what we, that, that we, we have to start from the individual. That's what I'm, I'm, I mean, I think that's what you're saying a little bit, right, that we start from the individual. Well, it's tied to the cultural piece mm-hmm. so that she was talking about, right. how we view each other. Okay. It, really, it really just boils down to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and then that leads us to, where do we? So let me ask. Let me go to this question, then, and maybe this will help us illuminate some of the questions about how do we get to solutions. So, um, so black families uh, under understanding what we've just had a discussion about. Black families have kind of been enormously resilient, right? Have been enormously resilient in surviving the various affronts, if you will, to their humanity, communities that have, black communities have kind of weathered those affronts. I guess my question is, what has, let's then start then, what has contributed to the resiliency of, of, of communities, of black communities, and the resiliency of black families? Because obviously it has, it has butted up against for 300 plus years against American exceptionalism mm-hmm. and those hierarchy of values. So what has been from your perspective the kind of the defining 
elements of that resiliency that has contributed to the survival of black people in America? That's a hell of a question, but I, it but, is. I but 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 I, but I I'm think Doctor McDowell for some of the doctors in the, in the house. But I, I thought, I, but that. I think we got to ask these big mm -hmm. questions. We're not going to always answer them, but I think we got to ask them. Yeah, I mean, you know, so when you think about um, just our history, I think because we've always drawn upon our our bonds with each other and community, that to me is one of our strongest. Um, areas of resilience. And I, I don't think that's unique to African-Americans or black folks, but I think we definitely do it well because we've had to. Um, so I, I like that when you talked about Kellogg choosing the word tra transformation, um, I think that's how we are as a people. You know, I think we just, we, we get in a situation, it doesn't make sense, so we transform and change into something else, right? We create our family systems to be the thing that we need. If we're separated from our mothers, we find a mother, we find an aunt, we find a father, we find what we need. And so I think, and the, the literature on um, black family re resilience shows that that's what we do. That's how, that's how we've done it. Um, when we think about, I wanna just address a little bit about your question about where to start though. I think that's another thing that we do well is that we are able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We can wor work with individuals and we can work on a policy level, right? We can do it all and we can work in our community. Exactly. So I think that's what we do well. And we're not, um, many of us are not swayed by this dog whistle politics either, right? Where we see our, maybe some of our white counterparts that even are more liberal or consider themselves to be more liberal, more progressive, they just get so bogged down in, oh my gosh, Trump this and Trump that, where we're like, this is our everyday, that we just gotta keep going, right? So um, I think that's a direct response to trauma, that when you look at an individual level from a psychological perspective, um, it's not the healthiest thing, right? Mm -hmm. So we do tend to power through when we are hurt, um, so I hope that that's a part of what, if we're thinking about rebuilding and um, you know healing ourselves from that, that needs to be a part of our work is allowing ourselves to sit and just process what's happening instead of always trying to work mm. through it. Mm. But I think because our um, uh, people who consider themselves or we think are our allies are kind of falling off, you know, they're they're finding themselves threatened. We still have to push through, and I think that's what we've always done. Mm. That's what we. You know, we hashtag these things like push through black girl magic. We do it. It's who we are. Um, and so I think that's why you just continue to see us continue to get things done and move it forward regardless of what's happening. Mm -hmm. okay. I would say just going back to the atrocities of slavery and the millions, hundreds of millions of Africans that died in the Middle Passage, that died on those ships, that died by jumping over the boat, that we think about who was left that actually got here. I mean, just to be resilient to go through that type of an experience and journey tells you about the resiliency of the people who did survive mm -hmm. and how they just had to rise, mm -hmm. to always rise. So the fact that we are descendants from those people who survived that 
um, says so much. And since that time, we've been living in a condition of post-traumatic stress disorder. Since that time. And it's just manifested in different ways. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really the root of it. Um, and as um, Tiffany said, we have just managed to always push through. And that's not always healthy. Matter of fact, it's just not healthy. Not to say always. It's just not, period. Um, but we've been conditioned to always, that's just kind of our norm. It's like fish in water. That's, this post-traumatic stress disorder thing is like how we just function. Yeah. And it's not healthy, for better or for worse. So, And, you know, um, I find that really interesting because now there's this discussion about intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. that can actually be transferred. I believe that. And, and uh, I think that's a really interesting yes. thought. There's research to show it. Yeah, and that, and that, that has implications on health outcomes, psychological Everything. well-being. Mm -hmm. Uh, depression, any number of things about how you uh, function in the world and, and how your adaptive mechanisms also kind of have to be created as a, as a response to that. So I think that's really, it's, this trauma is a really mm -hmm. big issue. And I, and I think what America has to recognize, and I don't think they fully recognize, is they have traumatized a whole group of people. Yeah. And that's a recognition that has not yet come to the fore, I think, as a collective understanding, and I think that's one that we, we need. I would also like to add, uh, just in terms of how and why black people have been resilient for so many years and centuries, our spirituality has been a fundamental part or defining element of who we are. And I think, but for that connection to our spirituality, our practice, that is really fundamental to how we have been able to sustain ourselves. And you can see evidence of those spiritual practices that have been mm -hmm. passed on generation to generation from the time we arrived on these shores to the present day. And it's manifested in different ways um, for people, but there's always something that I think generally our people always gravitate to around Absolutely. our spiritual foundation Absolutely. and how that sustains us through Absolutely. everything. You and, know? and actually that defines us, it defines us as a community. I mean, even in the practice, the call and response. When you're right. in the church, yeah. the call is like you're in community. The response is the community, right? right. Uh, and so that's a, that becomes a really critical element of the way people understand who they are, but also where they are. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's a great point. And it's it's not just us. It ties us to our, our cultural heritage to back to Africa and across the diaspora. So I love that when we're we're talking about spirituality, it's that that's the link, that's the connection between us. And it does place you. It it it's like wherever whatever church you go to, you can fit right in and you know what's gonna happen. So I think that's that's you know, that's true. the key, right? That's what that's what community is about. So you found where you're supposed to be through that spiritual home. Mm -hmm. And I like that you brought the diaspora into this because mm -hmm. it has manifested in different ways. Right. When you think about Condomble versus Santeria versus Boudoun, whatever it is, in terms of traditional African practice, right? Uh, Yoruba, it's all they all have some of the same fundamental elements. So it's like, why does that happen? It's just mm -hmm. that because depending on where we are in the diaspora, we've had to adapt and adjust and mm -hmm. make some accommodation for where we are. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Transformed. We transformed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Excellent, excellent. Um, let me talk about, and I'm, I'm going to drill down yet again, uh, because as you young ladies know, 
our work is focused on fathers and black men and boys and 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 i it's really important for me to 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 have black women in the room commenting on this because obviously without black women there are no black men and boys <laughs> That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> and there are no black families. <laughs> so we, we really uh, have to have the sisters weigh in on this. So increasingly there's been this discussion about kind of the, the, the disjuncture that black men have experienced. There was a recent, I don't know if you saw it, New York mm-hmm. Times recently put out a piece yesterday, I think it was the day or so ago, uh, that talked about the, that, black men who are coming out of families who even have high economic outputs, if you will, still find themselves marginalized economically otherwise. Because the argument has always been you get them connected to those families that work hard, that really go after that good education and buy into the American dream, everything will be all right. And what the research says is not so much that across the spectrum for black men and boys, no matter the nature, the socioeconomic standing of their families, they're still having disproportionately bad outcomes. Right. What the hell is going on? It's racism. So I guess, so I just wanted to, because I mean the narrative, if you will, out there about black men as fathers and black men generally, as we know, is not all that positive. And sometimes it ain't so positive coming from our own community, right? So I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts about where are we when we think about the role of black men and families, the role of black fathers and families, the role of black men in communities, and kind of reflecting on that from both, I guess, an intellectual vantage point of which you have much capacity to do, but also from your own personal vantage point because there's, a, there's another piece of this, right, that's about us as a people and how we think about our collective selves. So I just wanted to throw that out to you and ask you kind of, to kind of reflect on that a little bit. Well, there's definitely been a false narrative created about black men and their role in our families. This is just blatantly false. Um, I've always grown up seeing strong, positive men, um, whether they were within my family or they were role models, they were teachers, they were mentors. They were, uh, matter of fact, growing up as a young woman, most of my mentors were men. They were not necessarily women. I have women mentors, but the initial group, they were strong brothers that were trying to make sure that I was going to be okay. Um, and, I re- and as a as someone who grew up with my father, my parents were divorced early, and my father was still in my life, but he, he was in another city. So, I mean, I really appreciate having that village of strong men. And my mother made sure that we had access to men, particularly for myself and my brother. Um, so I just think there's just been a false narrative, period, that's in society about um, black fathers, black men, and what they do to step up. Because I see them stepping up all the time and across all economic stratas. Of course, there are some who are totally disconnected, which is why Fathers, Families, Healthy Communities is in existence. And we know that there is a need for some of our brothers that really need more support 
for a variety of reasons because of institutional and structural violence and racism, other things, that they have gone on a path where they now need more support to reconnect. Not denying that, but I would just say in general, and I think the Million Man March was evidence of that. When that, when that happened, to see all those brothers out there in Washington, D.C. on the mall saying, look, this is, we have been invisible, we've been marginalized, people do not see us, we are here, we are very much integral to our films and their survival. So I just think it's a false narrative that we have to correct. Okay. That's so true. And you know, it's funny because white men do the same things. They have the same behaviors, but because they don't have a lot of the structural barriers that black men do, I think we don't see and identify them as bad fathers or absent from their families and their homes. Yeah, yeah, they're providing. They're Mm -hmm. doing what they need to do. Mm -hmm. So I I totally agree. I mean, I've always had strong male role models around me. My father and my mother were married um, until my father passed away. My whole family, um, everyone is married. Everyone is together. And so that's what we saw. So it's just always interesting to me when I hear that. But I also don't discount it because I see in the media, I see on the news what people are saying. Um, and I also think what happens a lot of times is we get messages from our leadership that this is happening. Um, and when I say leadership, I mean in our, you know, in our country and in our community. But we don't see it from we don't see the response from ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, from black men. Um, so I think that's why when you see things like when you have uh, Barack Obama come out, that is a black man with a family of women, you know, he's, he's with this family of girls and raising these girls. I think people got inspired and excited by that as we do with any male father figure that emerges in the media, we celebrate them and we lift them up. Um, and I think other cultures lift up black fathers as well. I don't think it's just us. So I think we need to do more of that. Um, I also think, uh, I think because of the trauma that black men in particular have taken on in our um, country, I think it's harder for them sometimes um, because of the uh, just masculinity in general is difficult, right? So I think a black man, if you make any mistake, it's over, right? There's not much that you can do to come back from that versus maybe a black woman you know, I think we, we give women a lot of latitude, and I believe black women rarely make mistakes. <laughs> so, you know, we get, to, we get to shine a little bit, but we also, we also tell a lot of the stories. Well, let too, me just so. tell you, living in a household with a, with a wife and three daughters, that's what I've been regularly told. Now, I'm not sure I have any empirical evidence to back that up. <laughs> Well, I, I, well, let's say it like this. I definitely know that we definitely can bounce back and move and make sure that we, that we are reconnected, whereas men may not feel as strongly connected to our community. Well, and that's right? part of it because I think men generally are just socialized not to be connected to their feelings. Exactly. Being expressive of, or saying when they need help. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, they tend to be more shut down or not able to necessarily be as what do they call resilient or bounce back when right. something happens. Right. I think so that gets to the healing part too. Mm-hmm. Being more of a whole person. And I, and I have to give credit to single fathers that are out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you're doing. I mean, with, right. fa- with FFHC, I mean, you're trying to help these men 
reconnect with their children but and have a healthy relationship but also then lead their families and their communities in a way that's more positive. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of uh, unsung single black men that are fathers that are out there Absolutely. trying to do the right thing. Absolutely. So we need to give credit where credit is due. And it's really interesting, I mean, just about the narrative. So the CDC a couple of years ago put out a report, and it looked at the engagement patterns of low-income white men, low-income Latino men, and low-income African-American men. And what the research CDC found was that black men more consistently were engaged with their children and engaged in childcare and other kinds of things uh, as compared to Latino and white men. And it's, and I always find, and and this is a, this is the challenge for me because I, you know, I always uh, find um, like when I go and talk to foundations or I talk to policy folks, they say, bring me the evidence, bring me the evidence. But then when you show them the evidence, something must be wrong with that. Or, 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 you know, that's not just, that's not our experience. Or they don't shift the policy to reflect what's actually transforming, that's actually happening in the community to support it. Right. So, so, you know, when everybody talking about this, give me best practice, show me the research, show me, it's like, shut the hell up. Mm-hmm. Let's just look at what's going on and can we do something that's going to move the needle on this, right? right. And, and, and so I think that's the other thing that I think we have to be mindful of as we think about these larger issues because, you know, we have to, it's more than, it's a belief, it's more than just the research, right? Mm-hmm. It's about the belief and value that people have. That, and this, we're going back to that, yeah, right? right? We're going back to this value question. Mm-hmm. Here we go again. Here we go. So the question about values and what we value and what we're willing to value and who we're willing who to we value, value. Is, right. is, 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 a, is, a, is a critical piece of this. Mm-hmm. So, and we're, we're getting close because uh, I, I know we're going to, yeah, we got a little time left here. So, let me let, let's go to this, what seems to be an issue that's popping considerably in our neighborhoods in terms of strategies and concerns, and it, it, it's really around violence, right? And we've been seeing kind of this manifestation of violence in our communities. I guess my first question to you is, like, from your perspective, you know, I mean, everybody has their different points of view about why this is happening, right? But from your perspective, you know, is the, what's the linkage, if you will, uh, between these incidents of violence and what we know about the history of of trauma in America and, and black families and in black communities? Is there is there any linkage? And 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 what's your view about the kind of what's driving, if you will, uh, these these this issue of violence? And, and let me be clear, you know, unlike what our president said, uh, uh, that, you know, people are walking around Chicago shooting each other, uh, we know that th- this violence is, is isolated to particular communities, right? So, and, and can we say something about the nature of those communities or what's going on with respect to the inequalities and the, the levels of um, disparity that are in any way causal causally connected to what we understand to be this these patterns that we're seeing. Yeah, I think when you think about um, certain communities 
here in Chicago have been socially excluded from the assets, the resources, the things that we think are necessary to just be healthy and functioning at a minimal level of health, um, you can see why some of the levels of violence are, are higher, especially now when we are in such a, I mean, we're seeing, anytime you have school shootings on the level and you're talking about kids who are, who have been giving everything and they are frustrated, they're stressed out. So think about what's happening for our kids and our communities that are chaotic, highly disorganized. Um, you go down the street in any direction and you don't see a grocery store. You, you're seeing schools that look like they're abandoned, you know, parks that look like I don't know what. So, you know, when you have that, it just makes it, it's clear to me um, why people would feel that they have very few other options to deal with the hurt, anger, frustration that they have in interactions with mm -hmm. their friends and family members. Because these are your friends, right? Yeah. We're not talking about people running around shooting strangers. They're, they're having an interaction with people they know that has turned negative, and the only way that they know how to deal with that is to manage it with a gun or something else, right? It's violence. That's what happens. Um, so I know how I deal with my negative interactions with people. I know that I have. Um, if I wasn't taught some way to deal with that, what would I do? Right. So I think there's different reasons for that. Um, but I definitely can see why in a city like Chicago, violence would be high because you're talking about whole communities that have no access to any, and people are telling you they don't go outside their borders, right? They won't go to the loop. They won't go to the west side from the south side or vice versa. They, weren't, they won't go to the north side. They believe it's not for them. So you're believing that there are places in America where you are not supposed to be. That doesn't make any sense to me, and I wasn't I I wasn't raised like that. So it's interesting when you know when you talk to young people and they feel like they're places that don't belong to them. That's sad. That's yeah. very sad. And I think it's definitely because of the historical and structural racism that designed our communities this way. Mm -hmm. You know, it designed it for us to even those who have earned money, we come back to the communities where we grew up because we feel a connection there. Right. I wanna live around my people. Right. Now, I'm not from Chicago either. I've only been here seven years, but I wanna live around people that look like me. Right. Right. I wanna be able to have that community. And you know, I have to choose to live in a place that may have higher levels of violence and crime because I wanna live next to people that are my, my peers, you know? Um, that shouldn't have to be the case for people of any income level, right? You should be able to have a place where you can get everything you need in your community mm -hmm. and be able to afford to live there, right? So I think there's so many pieces of that that are tied to the historical racism um, that traumatizes the people right. in our communities. Right, right. Heather, you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I was thinking about, I'm, just, I'm agreeing with everything that Tiffany is saying. Um, my take on, I guess an added layer to what she just communicated is the messages that we just get societally in general about violence. Everything that we see in films, movies, media, television, video games, I mean, we're getting bombarded about all of these 
messages around violence and being violent and how, how you react to somebody who comes at you. I mean, I think about my parents' generation and even when I was growing up, when I was small, I mean, television wasn't as prominent as it is now. Movies, Hollywood, all of that stuff, it pushes society in general toward mm-hmm. thinking about mm-hmm. violence and all the, stu- the images that we're getting. So it's just compounded or tenfold when it gets to our community and how we react to each other. So I think that's just helping to encourage and foster so all of this. It's kind of a normalizing. It's normalizing. I mean, this, this country, the way, I mean, we're on stolen land. I mean, this, we have a violent history in terms of even how the United States of America was created. So, I mean, it stems this whole Second Amendment thing. Everybody wants to keep their guns. Why do we want to keep the guns? I mean, it's like... What you protecting? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's you know, that's right, the question like, that I ask. Who, like, what are you protecting and who are you protecting it against is right. my question. You know? <laughs> so, it's, so it really, yeah. So, I mean, get to your question, it goes to back to the founding of this country and then all the messages that we continue to be bombarded with. Um, just on a daily basis. Right. So and, I just think it's just... And, it's you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, we... I mean, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a... You know, one of my other hats is I'm an urban planner, right? So I know that there's a long-standing set of policies that have kind of ghettoized uh, black people in America and actually created uh, these sets of isolate, racial isolation that really does confine people to locations... Um, and there's even research that suggests that there, those those spaces become, um, uh, how can I say, galvanized and policed so that this, the boundaries of those spaces don't expand, right. and they don't expand into what Elijah, Dr. Elijah Anderson calls the white space, right? So there's a lots of understandings, um, and, and, and those understandings then get internalized by our youth because right. they, they, they're living it. They see the effects of that isolation, and they are then socialized to believe that this is the terrain that they have to protect because it's all they got. Right. Yeah. And, and I think from my vantage point, that, that, that feeds some of this question um, that we have around why youth kind of, why are we, why is it so neighborhood turf oriented? Why is it that we're not traveling, we're not seeing other neighborhoods as being a part of us? It's segregation. It's segregation has fed a lot of this. It's like, it's like, it's like the, it's like a different mechanism for colonializing individuals. Right. right. Racial segregation is colonialism in another, right. and it's in a new and interesting format in 2018. Right. So instead of we, you know, we you, we know how we ran around doing it on the continent, mm-hmm. now we're just doing it inside our borders of the borders of America. Right. So, I, again, I don't want to get off into this because then that might take that might take me off, and I might have to go take a drink, and you know I don't <laughs> drink. <laughs> so. But 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 I think these these much more nuanced understandings and historically oriented understandings of violence and it there's in its source and appreciating it in the context of the very set of policies that have created it are often why I think our solutions are off because we don't start from kind of that historical perspective 
and we don't start from that structural perspective or that policy perspective that has created the problem in the first place. So, so it's 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 really a challenge. So, so just given that we're on that this topic of violence, let's just wrap it up. And and what what some of your given given what we've just said, any thoughts about? how we might mitigate this, because the mitigation of this issue of violence is going to be important. It's going to be important for the well-being of our children. It's going to be important for the well-being of our families, our women, our men. So any thoughts about how we might go about kind of mitigating this and and resolving this in in ways that really strengthen outcomes in our, our communities? Environment is stronger than will, as they say. So the the more energy we can put into creating positive, nurturing environments for our children and families to help buffer them from some of this other stuff that's happening around them that's negative. Um, You know, that was kind of the comment I was trying to make when I was talking about my parents' generation in terms of what they were exposed to around television, film versus these later generations. I just didn't real. I don't think there was as much of an emphasis on the violent nature of things then, and I think that it has to do with this the way the media has evolved. Um, so that gets to environment, what you're exposed to, what you, you know. I think we have to be very intentional about the environment that we create when we're raising our children, mm-hmm. and what we expose them to, at what age we expose them to it, um, making sure that they are confident, strong. Know, have a strong sense of who they are and their history so that they can be able to go out and navigate the world as a world citizen and not mm. feel like they have to be isolated right. to their certain community that who right. they are right. Right. because of who they are. Right. I mean, that's just wrong. So I think the more that we can do that, the, I know there's all this other structural and institutional stuff we have to deal with, but it starts with you. You have to start with yourself. And mm-hmm. the more that we can make sure that our children become their best and highest selves, to deal with the world, then I think we're, we're, we're on a, we're, that's just more than we can ever put a value on, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. I think there's a lot to that. Okay, good, good. Dr. McDowell, any thoughts? I like that. Um, yeah. yeah, I think um, one of the things that we're doing with the Chicagoland Equity Network mm-hmm. is having people look deeply about who is most impacted um, from all of the structural racism or just institutionalized racism um, in our policies and practices. Um, And you can see here in Chicago, it's definitely black men and black boys. So I think um, there's a lot of strategies that could work, but I think if we don't use black men and black boys as our indicators of Mm. success, Mm. we're not going to see a change in that, right? We're not going to see a change in the violence, and um, we're not going to see positive outcomes increase for black men and black boys. So I think that we all, no matter what it is we do, if you're in community building, if you're in policy making, you need to be in any of your success indicators, you need to be thinking about what does this mean for black men or black boys, whatever age group you're trying to deal with. So if I'm working on education, I need to be saying, where are the, what are the levels for black boys in our school system? How can we get them to this level that we've created as the the measure of success? And what are the strategies Mm -hmm. we need to do to get to that? If I'm working in employment, same thing. If I'm working in 
you know, um, incarceration or, or de-incarceration, um, lowering policing in communities, whatever it is, we need to be thinking about that because these this group of people are suffering the most. And not only are they suffering the most, they've had this historical trauma for so long that we need to see how we can get them to a point of even just being um, a focus group. So I think... Focusing on black men and boys will help them to see how they can shift their own narrative about themselves too. So it's kind of it's a it's definitely a systemic way of thinking yeah. um, that definitely comes from my my therapeutic background, mm-hmm. right? It's like you always want to bring in the person that has the symptom and make them be the change, but really it's the people around you that have to change too, right? And I would argue that when we if, if you if you pursue that route that you've suggested, you're also having impact on the women in the community. Exactly. The children in the community and the community as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. And larger society and the ultimately. Larger society, exactly. right, the larger society. Exactly. I mean, because that's the recent data that came out from the Metropolitan Planning Council's cost of segregation study mm-hmm. shows that we're all paying the price, everybody, exactly. for segregation. It's not just those who are deemed oppressed. Mm-hmm. We're all paying the price. Um, and until we come to that realization um, that we all need to be doing better, actually, um, this was also emphasized in um, I went to this uh, event at UIC recently about the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission. That's why I couldn't mm-hmm. come to the Policy what, Link Tree Summit. What, what, and, and I wanted to go to that. Too right, bad, so I was conflicted. I was <laughs> right, well, I was in conflict, so I was at the other one, event, right? And Dr. Fred Harris, who was the surviving, the only surviving member of the Kerner Commission. He was so eloquent, but the one basic thing that he said is that, look, everybody does better when everybody does better. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. This whole separate but equal society that they showed that was happening 50 years ago, and that has been, which unfortunately has Mm -hmm. exacerbated. They say along employment, housing, and is it jobs? That we still haven't made the progress from 50 years ago. Right. Point We're still... All yeah, they're, they're all still down. So it's like, what is going on? But the bottom line, everybody does better when everybody does better. So we got to get to that. So, so, ladies, you have proven that uh, you are, in fact, illustrious, <laughs> intellectually gifted, and had lots to share. And I just want to thank you for being with me uh, this afternoon. Is there anything else that, anything that we, any last and final thoughts as we wrapped up today? Any, any thoughts, any final thoughts? I want to get back to the trauma and the health thing. I, and this is something that we've talked about with the TRHT work. The thing about trauma, health, mental health, we're all managing our health mm-hmm. and mental health in particular all the time. It's you not, ain't lying. It's not right. something where certain <laughs> people have mental health issues and others do not. We all have mental health issues. Yeah. It's just a matter of whether we have the tools and the, the coping mechanisms That's right. that help keep us healthy. And some of us do right. not have those. So we right. have to figure out how we can all be equipped mm-hmm. and better able to manage our health in a more holistic way. And actually, one of the members of our um, design team around was the Truth and Narrative design team. They brought up that there's been research, and you probably know this, Tiffany, that in societies where there are people who are more oppressed and having poor health outcomes, the people who are so-called the oppressors are also having poor mm-hmm. health outcomes. 
it's in those societies where everybody's trying to do better that, again, you have po- more positive quality of life for everybody. So I just have to keep emphasizing that. Yes. Yeah, I, I have. And it, it's interesting because we're in a country that has decided that health care is not a priority for us, right? It's not a human right. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, so we wonder why this is. But, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that back to health. I think this is why this conversation is important. Um, it's not just about, you know, working with certain communities because that's what we should do, but it's, it helps all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you take your personal value system out of it, even if you're being totally, like, selfish and just working on your own needs, doing that one thing will help you, mm-hmm. and it helps the bottom line economically, right? So I think that's, that's really where I, I would like to see more of us have this conversation. I, I always hate to go there because you're not going to get everybody right. on right. that sympathetic, just like we need to do better right. for the will of others. But I think um, I appreciate this conversation because I think bringing to light the impact of trauma and how we as a group of people um, are healing from that is so important. And the more that we can shed light on it, the better. So, sisters, we're wrapping up. So why don't you each give us uh, a little bit of information about how folks might get more information about the work that you're doing? Okay, so um, this is Heather. And um, people who want to learn more about the truth, racial healing, and transformation work can go to www.healourcommunities.org. That's the national website that's been set up by the Kellogg Foundation that highlights the work that's going on around the country in 14 different cities. Um, Locally, we are actually having an event at the Chicago History Museum on April 4th, which is the 50-year anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. All of the TRHT sites around the country will be doing something on that day. The local uh, effort that we're doing will be at the Chicago History Museum, and it's called What's Our Storytelling? And it's going to be kind of a NPR moth hour type event where there's going to be 11 folks who volunteer to tell their stories and reflections about the life of Dr. King and how it's impacted them. And uh, we're doing it at the Chicago History Museum, particularly because they have an exhibit right now on race Mm. that people need to catch before it leaves. I think it's going to be there until May or June, maybe July. But, yeah, so part of the time is going to be from 3 to 7 on April the 4th. You can um, go to, let's see, to get the tickets. I think it's on the Chicago History Museum website. Okay. Um, but you can also send an email to trht at woodsfund.org and ask to be sent the invitation for that event. Great. Thank mm-hmm. you. So you can find more about the Chicagoland Equity Network at shyequitynetwork.org. Um, we are always looking for more members, folks who are interested in connecting with other people who are working on equity, diversity, and inclusion in our area. Um, we are also collecting information from people to see what needs you have. So if you need speakers, if you need resources, training, um, or other opportunities, definitely let us know. You can also find out more about me at drtiffanymcdowell.com. Great. Well, uh, y- 
ladies, you don't know how much you've made my weekend. Uh, this is going to be, this is food for the soul, and I appreciate all your time and effort. And this is Dr. Kirk Harris. We're wrapping up here uh, with our uh, Father Engagement and Family Strengthening series. Please watch out for more on this uh, topic, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>